to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. This episode, we're going to be talking about the 2002 comedy, question mark, uh, Punch Drunk Love. Uh, starring Adam Sandler, and I am honored to welcome back to the show, Will Ashton. Welcome back. Hey, I'm glad to be back. So last time we talked about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which you yeah. cited as one of your favorite movies, and we were- My favorite, I, yeah. I think before that, this or around the same time, I think this was one of those films that was also sort of in the conversation of something that you mm-hmm. wanted to talk about, and we'll, we'll get to why in, in a couple minutes. So tell listeners who aren't familiar with you, you know, what you have going on, your, your other podcasting endeavors, and uh, where they, you know, where they can find you, what you're up to these days. Sure. Um, I primarily write for Cinema Blend, um, as well as the website Cinemaholics, and then I do the podcast Cinemaholics with John Negroni weekly and then i also monthly have a podcast called Ain't ogre tids ogre which i do with two of my buddies matt serfini and chris sheridan so uh yeah you can find all that on my twitter at the will vash so where are where is it ain't ogre till it's ogre where is that at now because i know it was shrek and then was it cat in the hat oh, okay. second i forget where yeah. we are um <laughs> yeah this year is our third season we're doing garfield the movie right of now of course naturally very on brand for you mm-hmm so, um, so how has that experience been? I guess watching that every week, right? Is that that's uh, basically the premise for people that don't know? Right. Well, it's every month. Yeah, we, month, we watch like. it once a month, and then we talk about it. Um, and it's going pretty well. Um, I think we've been producing some of my favorite episodes of the season so far. Just been doing a lot of uh, kind of kookier and weirder things as per usual. And um, the September episode, um, I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but our September episode is going to be coming out, I think, tomorrow. So um, I'm pretty excited for people to hear that. Is is there any talks about what you guys want to do if you would do a fourth season or is this kind of as, as far as you want to take it? Um, this is probably the last one. We've been kind of hyping it as the last season mm-hmm. because um, with the other three movies we've done, they kind of came naturally as far as, um, I don't know, just there's always like a point like halfway through the year where we'd be like, well, when it started, we, it made sense to do Shrek. And then uh, the fr- when we were doing the second season, it was like, oh, yeah, Cat in the Hat it made sense. Um, and then this year it made sense to do Garfield. And then we haven't really found that for the fourth film. So if we don't really ever come to a film that that really fits for what a fourth season would be. We'll probably uh, at least put the podcast on hold. But yeah, as of now, uh, this might be the last one. So what has been the criteria with that? The podcast just as far as selecting the films i guess the first one was sort of self-explanatory with the, the name mm-hmm. of the show and everything right so what what is kind of what are you looking for for uh for a particular for a, like what would the, the what would the next movie have to be in order for a fourth season to happen um well it's always movies that uh are like me and my co-hosts have watched uh as when we were younger and like we watched more than once like we had an affinity for as children and um generally like 90 minutes or shorter because um I don't know. There's something about like rewatching a movie that's 90 minutes long. Like if it's longer than 90 minutes or like 95 minutes and you rewatch it for some reason, it, that's when you kind of the weight of it gets to uh, it gets to you. But um, yeah, so we're, we've been kind of looking for something in there and then a movie that loosely connects to the other films because like we could we, there was like a very, very loose connection we've had with like all three movies, like with Mike Myers being in both mm-hmm. Shrek and Cat in the Hat, as well as like um, 
they're all like, you know, based on children's books or like literary properties that we were interested in or familiar with as kids. So there's this kind of like something that along those lines um, that might fit uh, that criteria. But so far, I mean, we've thrown some pitches and different films and it hasn't really we haven't really come to any resolution as far as what film would be the best for season four. So uh, unless that changes in the next three months, I don't know if we'll have a season four, at least not immediately. Right, right. So it's been, I guess, this will be going up sometime in the fall. So when people are hearing Mm -hmm. this, it might be like November. Uh, sure. Because I'm recorded, I'm recording in advance of, uh, of you know, trying to catch mm-hmm. up before the holiday season and all that. So last time we talked, the episode aired, I think, you know, February, March, around there. Mm-hmm. So a lot has happened since then. What have, what yeah. have been some of the, you know, some of the the best films, the ones that, that really stuck out to you or some of the some of the highlights of the year in cinema thus far for you? Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of films I've really enjoyed. I'm trying to think back on what I've seen that I've really liked because I feel like now we're kind of getting into like the uh, traditional award season mm-hmm. as far as um, what uh, I feel like are probably going to be on my top 10 for the end of the year. But let's see. I, I don't know if I talked about us or saw us when um, we first talked. Yeah, I don't think it. Uh, I think it was like either just about to come out or something like that. Yeah, I really liked that. Um, Long Day's Journey and Tonight is another one of my favorites for the year. Um, let's see. What else have I seen that I really enjoyed? Uh, Nightingale was one I really liked. I mean, I, I, I thought it was really good. I, it's definitely a hard sit. Um, hmm. yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of blank on the rest right now. But I, there, I, I th- yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say... Um... I was going to say I did a I, the, the same week I was kind of teetering between going to see the Nightingale or the Peanut Butter Falcon. And somebody oh. responded on Twitter, Twitter, like you couldn't have picked two different movies, two right. drastically different. So I actually missed the Nightingale here. So I'll have to check that out when it. Uh, when well, the it, funny thing. Yeah. yeah, the funny thing is um, theater. Right. I, I part time work with um, a theater chain or like an independent art house cinema. Right. Uh, located in Pittsburgh. And we have um, two locations. And uh, I think for about like two weeks uh, last month, we we actually had the Nightingale in one theater and Peanut Butter Falcon in the, in the other. So nice. um, sometimes people would come to the one theater or the other, like uh, see the other film and they, they went to the wrong place. And they'd be like, <laughs> oh, what are you showing here? And it's just like, like, I, like you know, like they're both quality films, but it's like you're not going to get the same no, not movie at all. night from <laughs> either of these. It's just, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of like those all those those stories that I feel like you hear like once every year or a couple of years where some like at the beginning of the boss baby they'll trail play like the trailer mm-hmm. for it or something like right. that and traumatize an audience of children or even start playing the wrong movie. Uh, right. so yeah, just the, that dress that contrast in tones I think is really is really funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I know one of the ones that you're really looking forward to is uh, Uncut Gems and as of yeah. This recording that the trailer just recently dropped. So, you know, since we are talking about an Adam Sandler film and one that steps outside of his normal, like, you know, wheelhouse, mm-hmm. uh, let what let's have a little brief discussion on uh, on the trailer of that. What did what did you think? Does uh, the trailer have as you I assume more hyped for for the film? I know you are a big fan of Good Time. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I I think my main takeaway from the trailer, because I mean, I'd read a couple of reviews by that point. So I knew generally what the film was about. And like you said, I've seen good time and I love that. So I, I knew their style at that point. But one thing that really I wanted to see was Adam Sandler's performance, because mm-hmm. I do think he has channeled that punch drunk glove, like talent or that potential in certain films that I really enjoyed. Um, Meyerowitz stories was one I really liked. Um, I think there was another one. He, oh, funny people. 
right. he was really good in as well. Um, and then some other movies that like he they're not very good films or they're not like amazing films, but he was generally pretty good in, in them. Like uh, Rain Over Me, he was good in um, Men, Women, Children isn't a very good film, but he was good in that. But uh, watching the trailer for Uncut Gems was like the first time. I, I felt like this is like the first film from Adam Sandler that really kind of captures that nervous energy mm-hmm. and that like that like sense of like anxiety that was throughout Punch Drunk Love. And I won't talk about that too much ahead of time before we talk about the film. But just that like, I mean, everyone's kind of caught the like more melancholy side, like with um, the movies I was talking about earlier. They, they talk they're able to see the more like depressive side that's seen throughout Punch Drunk Love. But no one's really been able to catch that like high tensity anxiety side that I thought was very much present throughout this film. And so watching the trailer for Uncut Gems was like, oh, okay. So uh, almost 20 years later, we're finally getting to see this side again of uh, Adam Sandler. And that's very exciting to me. Yeah. Seeing that trailer and then watching Punch Drunk Love, as we'll get into Mm -hmm. just a couple of days later for the first time, uh, because this was a film I hadn't seen before. uh, I, I did sense that sort of in a way, energy like it did feel like an energetic companion piece in a way because Mm -hmm. that film does feel kind of like every sec the the uncut uncut gems trailer feels like every second or so it's like ratcheting up ratcheting up ratcheting up and from what i understand that that basically i think i saw some tweet that said that the actual film and i'm assuming these are people that saw it at festivals or whatever is very much like basically an extended panic attack for like Mm -hmm. two hours and they're like how are they going to market it that way Right. Uh, exactly. The, the trailer doesn't really capture that that the intensity of that. So mm-hmm. I, I did find that I, d- I did have that in the back of my mind while I was watching this film. And uh, I'm really fascinated to see to see what he can do in, in that kind of environment. I mean, we've seen it here and there like uh, before, but I think it does capture, as you were saying, a different side to to his performances. And we'll talk about uh, his career, obviously, in, in this mm-hmm. episode and how he when he really when he wants to put an effort forth he he goes for it and he kind of delivers mm-hmm. as a dramatic actor which you you know i think a lot of people myself included i as i said i hadn't seen this until recently so i just you know i think of billy madison and movies like that mm-hmm. like all his netflix stuff now and i'm just right. like oh adam sandler you can't take him seriously but then every yeah. once in a while he he does make an effort so uh mm-hmm. i feel like we've talked as much about this film as we can without really getting it started so Mm-hmm. Um, let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of the trailer for Punch Drunk Love right now. I wanted to ask you something because you're a doctor, right? Yeah. I don't like myself sometimes. Can you help me? Mary, I'm a dentist. Hi, this is Georgia. This is Barry Egan. So what do you do, Barry? I have my own business. Uh, we have a non-breakable handle. Let me demonstrate for you. Married, aren't you? No. Mary, it's your sister. There's this friend of mine from work, and I want you to meet her. This is Lena. Hi. Hi. Do you have a girlfriend? No. It must be weird for you to have so many sisters. Uh, Actually, no, it's very nice. All Remember right. we used to call you gay boy and get all mad? What's that? We were calling you gay boy, and you got so mad. I saw your picture, and I really wanted to meet you. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, are you lying? <laughs> no. I didn't want to get too far along I'm going out and be hiding something. This is Barry. Hey, it's Georgia. How did you get this number? I was wondering if maybe you could help me out with some money. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. You've just made a war for yourself that you can't afford. 
afford. I'm going to Hawaii on Friday. Hawaii? I was thinking about going there. Really? I'm going to start a collection of puddings and coupons that can be redeemed for frequent flyer miles. That's insane. This is Barry. You canceled your credit card. That's a bunch of bull! Get your supervisor on the phone! Yeah. What's your name, sir? You're sick. No, no, no. Shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! Are you threatening me? Yes. That wasn't good! You're dead! Help, help. And all at once I knew, I knew, I knew. So much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. He needs me, 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 he needs me. That was a little bit of the trailer for Punch Drunk Love from 2002, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. So, Will, you you know, you know, said this was one that was in the conversation before when we were trying to figure out what we wanted to talk about. Yeah. So what uh, what about this film makes you made you want to bring it to the table to, to talk about? Well, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson uh, is my favorite director. He has been my favorite director for... I want to say about 10 years now or maybe even a little longer than that. I know my first film I saw from him was There Will Be Blood. And then shortly thereafter, I was really digging into his filmography. And um, at some point after I'd seen a couple of his films, I I made my way to Punch Drunk Love. And I had heard about before. Actually, I think um, the first Adam Sandler movie I saw was Mr. Deeds, (laughs) which uh, I don't think people really bring up for understandable reasons. Right. but I mean, I was a kid when I saw it and I, I remember enjoying it. I mean, I, I haven't really had any desire to rewatch it, but um, I did like it when I saw it. And I was curious about him as a comedic actor. And I remember um, it's weird to think about now in retrospect, but I was in elementary school or maybe early middle school. And uh, my one teacher, because sometimes she talk about the films that she saw. She was like, oh, I went to the movies this weekend. And I saw Punch on Glove with Adam Sandler. And I was like, you know, I recognize the name at that point. I was like, oh, because I was like his next film. I was like, well, how was that? And she's like, I don't know. It just was very weird. It was very like she wasn't really. Yeah, she wasn't really digging it. And I remember like I saw a paper or a review in the paper that was kind of mixed on the film as well. Um, And then like over the years, I've talked to different people who were like, you know, I didn't really get that. It was very odd. But then I'd hear from other people uh, as I got older were like, oh, you know, like this is one. This is the one film uh, critically, where they're like, you know, he, you know, they, they dismiss all his other films to varying degrees. But they're like, Punch on Glove, that's the one where he's like, that, that's that's the good one. Or that's the one that was like, we can we can see why people like him because of this film. And, you know, I, I have kind of like a mixed reception overall towards Adam Sandler in that, like, I like some of his comedies. Um, I really enjoy uh, Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. Um, I, as I think most people who, uh, grew up in or near the nineties, yep. uh, do, I just, I, I enjoy them. I think I prefer happy Gilmore a little bit more. Just like, I think that one's a little more funny, but I do think Billy Madison has more of the heart that you can expect from some of, uh, of Adam Sandler's other films, uh, towards the two thousands. But, um, you know, I mean, th- with the, the, with the exception of like, you know, like grownups and, um, 
oh Jack and Jill and you know like you say like you said a lot of the Netflix things have been very dire but it generally I just feel like a lot of them are like you know they're not that good but I don't really like hate them as much it's generally like even some of the like so so ones I can enjoy like Big Daddy and 50 First Dates um and I think Wedding Singer is pretty good as well um yeah but I there was um always a desire for me to watch Punch Drunk Love and I watched it in high school and I remember thinking like this was good like I liked it but I wasn't really it, it felt a little like um fractured like I wasn't 100% with the story like I wasn't really getting what it was doing at that time but it was a film that like really stuck with me in a way that a lot of movies don't like even movies I really like don't stick with me as much as that movie did just like the rhythms of it uh the way that it, its viewpoint on life the way that it intercepted with the character's mindset and um especially as I got into college and I I started to watch the movie more and really get into it more it it, it kind of just quietly became one of my favorite films and normally I feel like with a lot of people like when they have a favorite film it's like an instantaneous thing like it just kind of happens at that time in their lives when they see it and then they just kind of grow more and more fond of the film but this is one that it, it kind of was like a slow up the mountain kind of thing for me where I, I liked it at first but then the more I thought about the more I really pieced together what Paul Thomas Anderson was doing uh, it became not only one of my favorite movies but I think my favorite film from Paul Thomas Anderson I mean I won't say it's like his only masterpiece because I think he has at least like a few, but it's the one I, I, to me, looking at his filmography, it's the one I think where he's really started to come into his own as a filmmaker, kind of removing, well, maybe not removing, but like kind of stepping away from the Martin Scorsese, Robert Altman uh, kind of mimicking stage where like even, even though I really do enjoy Magnolia and uh, Boogie Nights and his first film, Part 8, there definitely is a sense where he, he his voice isn't quite as clear and his vision isn't quite uh, singular in there. And then with this film, that's where to me, like that's where you really got to see the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson that came out with There'll Be Blood and um, The Master and most recently Phantom Thread. So that's why I'm always curious to talk about with someone who hasn't seen it, because like it for me, it's like a very kind of it was a almost gradual thing for me to really love this film. But um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people and they either don't connect with it at all, like have mixed feelings or they love it. So I'm always curious to see where another person lands on this film on first watch. It's interesting that you say about how um, how you didn't really connect to it because you know, you know you needed to either kind of grow into it in a way, because I feel like that's probably what happened with me with um, with There Will Be Blood. Like I ha- I saw okay. that when it came out. And I was, you know, my early 20s, but I still I feel like in a way I was in a very nascent state of my like cinematic education. But I was, you know, really still influenced by my, my family's more conservative interest in film and they all didn't like it. So I think I was mm-hmm. sort of influenced by that. And I actually still haven't really gone back to revisit it, but I've, I've been meaning to do. Oh, that. it's great. So, so that was like a, a really because of that movie, I had. The long for the longest time, I've had kind of an aversion to uh, Paul Thomas Anderson because I was like, oh, I don't know, want to really get into that. That was like rough to, for me to sit through at the at the time. Mm-hmm. Again, I haven't revisited in like since it came out, so I, I'd really be interested to see what I think about it now. Um, Phantom Thread, I had kind of mixed feelings about, but then more recently, going, I went back to see Magnolia for the first time, and I really liked that. And then watching this one uh, in the context of, you know, well, maybe I need to rethink my opinion on Paul Thomas Anderson that I clung to for, you know, over a decade without really delving into as many, many of his films. 
And I'm starting to realize that maybe maybe I, there is something about about this filmmaker. And of course, you know, on film Twitter, he's like basically a god. Uh, mm-hmm. It's him and the Coen brothers and you right. know a few other people that are kind of held on this pedestal. So I'm yeah. starting to now Scorsese and yeah, and stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm now starting. I feel like I'm now that I'm getting more into his films. I'm actually letting myself get into his films, uh, and mm-hmm. I'm starting to I'm, I'm starting to get it more. And I think. In a, in a large part, this movie has really helped with that because, you know, you were saying about how, I mean, it, it's it's a very tense film and you're 100% from Barry's perspective. And in that way, yeah. it felt, it reminded me of something like You Were Never Really Here, where you're okay. so locked in on this character and, and you, you know, all the, the inner turmoil that he yeah. has going on that, that for me... This was a very, this was a kind of a, not a hard movie to watch, but like a very tense movie for, mm-hmm. for me to really, oh, yeah. to, to watch. And, you know, I, I think it depends on your, obviously, I mean, this is, says, goes for all films really, but I think how you react to a film depends so much on you, you know, uh, so much on subjectivity of where you're coming from, from this. And so I'm a person who has dealt with social anxiety who has dealt with like, you know, mm-hmm. depression to some degree, not, 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 you know, I'm not beating up bathrooms or reacting the way he's reacting, but like right. the emotional core of it really, really spoke to me. And I under, you know, I understood where he was coming from with that. So I think, I think, you know, that's that, that emotional through line has, was made, made it like really kind of uncomfortable for me to watch if that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely an uncomfortable film. Uh, and that's why I think, I think people either respond to that or don't, especially um, upon first watch. It, it, the, the intensity of it and just the unnerving uh, like dread that's throughout the film, or like this like this this idea that like there's always something kind of going wrong throughout the movie. Right. <laughs> like even if it's just in the background, like there's always like it's one of the few films I really think captures that like anxiety of just like at any moment like somebody's gonna come in and like I, I love in this movie something that I, I noticed a lot more on this rewatch is that like there are constant moments where uh Barry is like literally cornered mm-hmm. like he'll be like talking to somebody and then they literally go into the corner of the room and like he just kind of has to like deal with that or whatever it is either it's like his sisters or you know like these uh other opposing threats I don't want to give too much away um that happened throughout the film but yeah it just like he he is like constantly like like there's always something going on. And I think one of the things I really appreciate about the film is that like throughout the beginning of the film, like every every moment where there's like something that is possibly going to go wrong does go wrong. Mm-hmm. So like you're constantly like like the fear, lots of anxiety. It's like you're you're always worried. You're always tense because you feel like something is going to go wrong. And then with this movie, it's like all this stuff goes wrong. But then like he kind of like learns that he can get through it because he has like this um, love in his life that is able to support him and understand him, uh, even though like he's not a perfect person or he can really be understood fully. But through like that, he's able like, cause like, it's not like things ever really get better for him, mm. but he, he just finds that strength, uh, especially from like, you know, like, cause like things do go wrong, but like he is, he's able to kind of in his own weird way, able to solve his problems and kind of have this authority that he's never had throughout his life. But he's always had like also like this, pent up aggression and like this like anger and frustration about life and about like not being able to connect to people and not really sure how to express his emotions. Um, one thing that I think really stands out with this film is that uh, they're very, they're very much pointed about like not really saying what uh, Barry's like affliction is like mm-hmm. they're like, he could be bipolar. He could be on the spectrum. It, it's never really clear. And I think, other films have tried to like kind of keep it vague like that, and it often backfires. Like, um, 
I just recently watched a movie called The Fanatic with uh, John Travolta. Oh, yeah. um, uh, and that's a film where they, they kind of similarly try to keep uh, the the personality of the character vague as far as like what like afflicts him. And that very much backfires. But with this film, I think it kind of adds to the general like mystique to the outside world. Like you're like you said, you're exactly right where like you're able to see the world through his eyes. And it's very much more about like both metaphor and like feeling like like you're you're getting the world through his eyes and like just how things don't really make sense. But there is kind of like a weird poetic harmony to them. Like things happen like they're like a ballet kind of to like how things happen. It's like chaotic, but there's also like a grace to it. And I think that's 100 um, percent a credit to both Adam Sandler's performance and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson as a director. Yeah. Um, but yeah, go yeah. Ahead, sorry. No, no, that's that for me. So you good. I was going to say and you, you see that so much like so much in the way that his the way that he in, interacts or doesn't interact with people, the way that his his sisters treat him like you can understand the context from which mm-hmm. they think they're trying to help. But yeah. also, like how overwhelming it is, you know, you know, he, the way the casual nature in which they bring up, way. yeah, mm-hmm. the casual nature in which they bring up, you know, oh, you remember when you were, you know, when you were a kid mm-hmm. and you, you threw that that hammer and you know we used to call you gay boy and all this mm-hmm. stuff and it's like, as a person who understands social anxiety and that kind of thing, I'm thinking yeah. to myself, oh my god, this is like stressing me out because I understand right. what he's feeling and I think the movie does a great job of of putting you in his headspace and that sort of constant uncertainty where he's con- he's he's saying I don't know all the time either because he literally doesn't know or mm-hmm. because he's just worried about being judged and that's a feeling that I understand like mm-hmm. a, a lot as far as you know in the movie with the with the um the pudding especially which is yeah. kind of a running uh, a running thing throughout a subplot that apparently in my research was based on an article that yeah. something that really happened which I thought was really interesting yeah I believe uh, um in real life I think they were able to stop it fairly early on like there's a guy or maybe a couple people who kind of saw through that loophole and i think they like caught it fairly immediately but in this movie yeah the, the, it, it's something that like it, it it's like almost like the company is kind of like ignorant or like just like indifferent <laughs> to like this huge loophole like that's like the first scene in the film is like him like basically trying to point it out like right. you know he's like telling them basically there's this loophole and they're just like yeah i don't he, you know it's just like a typo he just <laughs> like he just yeah and so that's something that always uh, very much amuses me as I watch and rewatch this film. And there's certain elements here that the little touches that PTA brings to his movies that make them feel kind of almost dreamlike in a way too. Like it's mm-hmm. it's insanely grounded, but it's also there are little unexplained instances like the harmonium that just randomly shows up in the opening yeah. of the film, and it's kind of a a running uh, a running thread as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is also an instrument that's heavily used in the score and also. Uh, yep. those, those swirls of the color, like the, the visual art mm-hmm. that's sort of interspersed yep. throughout to kind of, I don't know. I don't know. What do you, what do you think exactly that PTA is trying to capture with the, with the, the, the color, I guess, specifically? Um, well, to first go back to the uh, opening mm-hmm. that you're talking about, I do want to talk about that. Cause I do think, I think that to me, like that sums up the whole film, like that yeah. opening where um, throughout like the beginning of the, the first shot of the film is very like, like he's very much on the left of the field. Like he's not center focus. Like it's like kind of like an acute frame where like he is like not central to the action. Like he's like off distance. He's literally a nice thing. He's also in the corner as well. Yeah. Um. And then he goes out and there's also another theme throughout the film where he's constantly like boxed in or in boxes or like in like uh like square shapes throughout the film. Like his office is like a like kind of like a box within the box. Uh, the bathroom, his apartment's like a box. 
uh, like throughout the film, there's just like a constant like uh, the phone booth is another one. Yeah, he's um, always trapped somewhere basically. Right, he he's always like kind of yeah. life. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, uh, like the plane is one. Yeah, there's like all these different ones. Um, but yeah, he like gets out of, like he kind of gets out of the box and he like looks out in the street, like looking out into the world, and there's like a car coming, and that's like. You know, like this, like there's this like kind of running, like like the score is kind of building up and there's like this intensity of like what's going to happen with this car. And sure enough, that's like the disastrous. Like, like it's like this car that's like moving and then it, it like just spurts out and crashes onto the street. And then, like you said, out of nowhere, there's like this harmonium that comes out and drops out. And it's that that balance of disaster and harmony that is um, throughout the film. Like that's like basically what his life is like. It's like a, a chaos and it's harmony. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of working back and forth. And it's when the um, harmonium comes in that um, I don't know if you notice. There's like kind of like four different shots of him like in the middle of the street uh, with the harmonium, mm-hmm. and each time he is uh, in center frame, and that's him literally finding his harmony because that's like just uh, like I think either right before, or right after he meets uh, Emily Watson's character for the first time. Yeah, I think, it's, and that's like the first. Yeah, I was gonna say I think I think it's right after because she points out there's a piano in the street to him yeah. uh, early on. So it's like literally she is kind of the harmony that comes into his life at that moment. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like, that's like the, like there's a lot of like metaphorical textures. Also the harmonium is like another box. Right. Um, like a, like another small box that, uh, but yeah, like um, as far as the colors, uh, to your earlier point, yeah, like the, they like kind of swirl the colors that uh, we see kind of as um, transitions throughout different scenes. Uh, that's like kind of like the um, emotion to me. Yeah, I take it as like the emotions that flutter throughout uh, Barry's character, and he I like, can't really like describe them. Uh, we, we, there's another scene where he's like literally trying to like connect with somebody in a very vulnerable, emotional way, and uh, it's very amusing because he he thinks that the guy's like a doctor, mm-hmm. uh, Robert Smigel, a uh, very famous uh, Saturday Night Live writer. Uh, and then like normally the scene would end with him revealing the joke, which is a good joke, which is like I'm a dentist. <laughs> Uh, which is like, you know, like that's like the like normally most movies that would be like the like end of the scene, like it would like hard cuts to the next scene. But in this, it like kind of keeps going and like it ends like he's like getting very emotional about it. Uh, and he like, you know, just bursts into tears and, you know, he runs to the bathroom again, another box. Um, yeah, he, he is very much an incapable of expressing these emotions that kind of come through his life. But there's like this kind of like this rhythm, this like kind of like chaotic like um uh like uh this like, mu- like this there's a very musical quality to the film uh i think i don't know if I, I i forget if i heard this somewhere but like i think um adam sandler is like the suit is like mimicking like gene kelly or like kind of like 40s musicals I um see that. yeah and like there's like certainly moments of the film where there's like when he has like kind of like this relief or this like epiphany or like moments of uh like exuberance or like the eureka moment he like kind of like has like like there's like the scene in this grocery store where he like breaks out into like a dance, mm-hmm. uh like kind of like a like it, it kind of starts out like a Gene Kelly dance. It kind of transitions into like a Charlie Chaplin walk. Um, there's like yeah like this kind of like musical romantic harmony in his life and the um, colors uh, throughout the film often kind of reflect his emotions or like uh, who different characters represent. Like for him, he often wears like kind of blue, kind of like dapper colors, and Emily Watson wears a lot of like, kind of bright. Uh, like a lot more like striking colors and like that kind of like balance, like I said, like that, like kind of yin yang harmony that is uh, basically the definition of Barry's life as we see in the film. Yeah. Yeah. I, and you know, when you were talking about the harmonium, it also made me think that the, that is a, yes, it's a box, 
but it's also a box that he's not, first of all, not enclosed in, that he's on right. the outside of, in which he's learned, by the end of the film, has learned to play. Like, you somewhat, know, it, yeah. Somewhat, yeah. he's getting there. Like, yeah. you know, there's a, obviously yeah. a little bit of a time jump at yeah. the end of the film. And right. He mentions um, to um, Lena at some point that uh, that he's learning how to play a kind of, like, <laughs> just kind of messing with it as we see throughout the film. And I think that's yeah, another... It, it, his another, line, I think, is like, I wouldn't be on a concert anytime soon or something like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So I think that's another another way in which you know he's he's trying to figure out how to how to uh, how to manage his emotions, how to um, find his way in in the world and all that stuff. And I think that yeah, you really you kind of you're making me. This was a film I already liked, and you're making me appreciate it even more. We're talking all. I'm about glad to hear. This. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, you know we talked a little bit about his inner life and him dealing with his uh, his sisters who are obviously trying to pressure him to to go out to meet people to meet girls and then also joking about him to his face and behind his back and and of course we have that that big outburst at the the party scene so let's talk about let's talk about the uh the meeting with Lena and kind of the relationship that develops there uh you know Adam Sandler is an actor that has been paired with a lot of famous actresses in films mm -hmm. before but I don't think I've ever really seen him have this kind of chemistry with with an actress before uh with this mm -hmm. you know exception maybe someone like drew barrymore but again that's a completely different kind of movie yeah. different kind of chemistry different kind of relationship and uh context so what you know what do you think about makes those these two actors mesh so well on screen and particularly the two characters because you get a lot of hints that emily watson is is uh that lena has other that she's has other stuff going on too i mean i think in early in the film I think there's even I, I read this on IMDb trivia, so I don't know how accurate it is. Mm -hmm. There's even shots of her like kind of following him at one point earlier in the movie before they even meet. She uh, admits yeah. later on that mm -hmm. she showed up there to drop her car purposefully because she wanted to meet mm -hmm. him. So she, you know, clearly is kind of going about things her own way, too. And we don't know exactly what her uh, what her emotional inner life is like. But, you know, what do you you know, what do you think about that romance and how it develops? Yeah, I mean, well. One thing that always stands out to me, and I, I guess I can understand why some people perceive it as a flaw, but like there is very little that's known about em Emily Watson's character. Mm -hmm. Like we only really know like just kind of vague, like off, like one-liner notes that she kind of tells him throughout um, right. when he's willing to listen or um, uh, does actually communicate with her. Um, but I can see why some people might be put off by that, like that she seems like, like I, I don't know if I've really heard this said directly but i i wonder if somebody like who, who isn't really appreciating the film might dismiss her as like a manic pixie dream girl right but um to me i, I to me it just kind of adds to his worldview which is that like he like it doesn't really like make sense like a lot of things don't really make sense to him like why he like feels like intimately drawn to this person that he barely knows or like why he feels the need to uh go to hawaii for a person that he like just went on one date with uh, but like, there is like this, like the one thing like you point out really well is that like, you, you do really get like a understanding of Barry as a character. Like, even though he's like this kind of unplaceable person we do throughout the film, at least as it goes on, you do kind of get a sense of like why he feels like certain things are, should go certain ways or like how certain things are connected to one another. And like, there, there's like an emotional logic to the film if there's not a like real narrative logic to it. And um, I think that's kind of like what love is like love. Like it doesn't really make sense. Like there is like no um, there's like nothing really that like makes sense about it from like a scientific standpoint or anything like that or like a logical standpoint. But it's very much like what you feel is right or what you feel you need to do or like how you feel like you connect with somebody. 
And um, when you have a relationship, it's when you realize that someone else feels that same way towards you. And with Emily Watson's character, from the few hints we get from her perspective, it's clear that she is basically, like you said, like the opposite or like the like the uh, the inverse of him where he like she has seven brothers, she says Um, she has been in relationship before. It's kind of loosely implied that Barry's never really been in any sort of romantic relationship in his Mm -hmm. life. Like she's been uh, previously married and then at least in one other relationship. Uh, so like, and, you know, like I said earlier, she has like a lot of like kind of brighter, like more uh, like uh, eye popping colors throughout the film. But the, like that scene, like where they're in bed and they have like intimacy, like there there is like a, a real connection where like they, they share a similar sense of humor. They share a similar <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of like odd uh, rationale with one another, like a kind of like messy way to describe their feelings for one another. And that's when you really realize that like while like the relationship doesn't really like make sense they they do really care for one another and they they get each other on like a like monocule level and i think that's why the relationship works even though we don't really know all that much about emily watson's character is that like the emotional honesty like i said is there and i think for all the for all the moments of the film that don't really make sense and you have to kind of rewatch to figure them out like that relationship there is a truth to it i think and i think there is something that feels really resonant and poignant about it. And I, I think that's one reason in particular that this mo- this movie really uh, warms up to me, especially as I rewatch it. Yeah. I always remembered, you know, hearing that, that line about, I, I you know, you're, I'm going to, I want to smash you in your face or whatever mm-hmm. the line is. And I was always right. thinking to myself, in what context is that romantic? Because right. I hadn't seen the movie. So I didn't, you know, I didn't know exactly what it, what it mm-hmm. was, but I found their, their relationship to be really sweet and, and heart, mm-hmm. heartfelt uh, throughout. And, yeah, uh, I think it actually, in a way, you know, had Paul Thomas Anderson been, you know, posturing this film as an even two-hander between the two stars, then I think you could you could criticize it about like, well, she's really underdeveloped and all that stuff. But it's he's so clearly telling this story from Barry's point of view, and she just right. integral part of that. She's kind of his salvation in a way. So if anything, mm-hmm. you know, I I think the the other question is that you know someone could come to this film with the criticism of like, oh, she thinks she can change him or something like that, maybe yeah. looking at it that way. Um, but I think there are hints that while superficially they seem like she seems like she has all her shit together, mm-hmm. there are a lot of indications that she doesn't have her shit together. Right. She's tr- she's She has her own baggage and her own issues that she's dealing with that he's not seeing. And I mm-hmm. think that's, you know, the, those those are the ways in which they sort of counterbalance each other in that she she's... a, a She's willing to be vulnerable when he's close mm-hmm. off. She has to maybe pull him out of his shell a little bit. But then, you know, they, they when they're both, like as you're mentioning, when they that that one scene, one of the only scenes in the movie in which they are both vulnerable with each other, uh, I think you know they're they're able to cut through all of that and and realize mm-hmm. how just how alike they really are. And uh, I especially really like the the moment, um, <laughs> the moment when at the end of the date he's like, oh well, you know. The, I'll, I'll call you and, and bye bye and he's saying himself yeah. oh bye bye you stupid motherfucker mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. Um, and then she calls she calls him uh, and says oh you know I just wanted I just wanted you to know I wanted to kiss you right now and then mm-hmm. he literally runs back and then what happened when you know when they have that kiss and then they have that embrace and she's just holding him and mm-hmm. the camera is on you know the back of his head and she, you know and and her face. That was mm-hmm. a really sweet moment that really yeah. moved me in a, in a lot of ways because you you see his perspective and how that's like a, a sense of, of love and compassion and belonging 
and empathy that he hasn't felt in a long, long time. I mean, yes, his, his sisters, obviously, they care about him, even though they, they, they're trying to force themselves on him and trying to force mm-hmm. things to get better. That's not that's not how you, you help people through this kind of right. thing. It just makes it that it just ag- exacerbates the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love that moment later on where his sister is actually kind of defending him to uh to lena when lena is pretending to be like oh yeah i don't know i don't know i didn't i never heard from him or whatever yeah um you know after they spent the night together Mm -hmm. and his sister's like you know well she's not he's not that weird it's you get a little you get you get to see more of how his sisters uh really regard him in that they're you know they're just coming on so strong because they're they're concerned they're worried about him and i think everything about the relationships this movie felt really true and i think um it's the kind of thing you don't see often in films. You know, a lot of times these movies, you know, romantic comedies are especially, and, you know, we'll get into whether or not this is a comedy kind of uh, mm-hmm. in a second, but um, everything is so like squeaky clean and everything is resolved so easily at the end of the film. And, and, and this film, this movie just hints at the possibility of, of them kind of healing each other in a way. And I think that that mm-hmm. makes it kind of, uh, it makes it a really beautiful love story. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I definitely am excited to talk about the comedy aspect of the film. But um, yeah, I, I especially love the scene you're talking about um, where he goes up to meet her. I, I love that, like, there's like this moment where, like, for like three minutes, he just like cannot find the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's just like constantly, like, like, like there's like this kind of like drab, monotone look to this like apartment complex where like uh they all kind of look the same like each door is exactly alike and um and that that to me is like another scene that's very um metaphoric to the film where it's like everyone else is like you know like kind of like square and like this kind of direct way where like he feels like boxing everyone else is just kind of like you know normal and just kind of well adjusted and just like like no like uh, only a few times do people really actually lash out at him but for the most part there's like this kind of like eerie like calmness to every other character in the film where they just kind of like monotone like address him like they don't really like ever really point out like the absurdities of what's going on except for like a handful of scenes um but that scene i just love that like you know like that's like what he's been doing his whole life just like kind of like going through all those places like going in misdirections and just like trying to find like that one person that he's been looking for and it's just like like you said it's a really beautiful touching scene that's like i think so affecting because it's so simple and it's just um i think to me that was the intent for paul thomas anderson he said that um with uh his last film before this magnolia uh which i I really do enjoy i I don't think it's one of my favorites for him but it's one i really like um that was a film that uh it was like so sprawling and so big with like 15 different characters uh comedian paul f tompkins once described it as like Basically, if you had a phone book and then like everyone in the phone book just started talking to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Yeah. And he intentionally um, with this film would be like, you know, like not I don't want to make another three hour like uh, ensemble piece. Like I wanted to make a 90 minute character study just based on one guy that's very like direct, just kind of like studying him as a person. And um, I can see why that puts some people off or like I can see why the decisions here are kind of hard to get around. But. Uh, yeah, just the more I watch this film, just like that simplicity and this like that that nuance that's found in that simplicity just really just really resonates with me. Yeah, and it's it's also you know this as you were saying with Magnolia. I mean, it feels like this is such a, the antithesis to that in so many mm-hmm. ways because 
as you said, that was three hours, so many characters. This is 90 minutes, and it's one guy's story, really. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I did a little you know research about his, the introduction of the film, and when he was announced that his next film was an Adam Sandler comedy, people were like, oh, that's funny. Is, what, what is it really? They're like, no, no, an Adam Sandler comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so touching to, you know, getting into this film as a as a comedy for for Adam Sandler you mentioned Mr. Deeds earlier this came out the mm-hmm. same year as that and uh Little Nicky was just a couple years before and I think that okay. was a huge box office failure so I feel like okay. maybe that maybe helped Adam Sandler be a little more open to, to trying something different just because his you know I think it was maybe the first sign that his his normal shtick was sort of not foolproof because that, up to that point he had you know, Happy Gilmore and Big Daddy and Wedding Singer and all these movies that were like killing Waterboy, especially uh, at the box office. So do you, you know, would you consider this a comedy? It kind of is. I mean, I think there are elements of it to like the scene that you mentioned. And and I guess what kind of comedy is it if it is a comedy? Oh, I I definitely think it's a comedy. Um, Yeah, I I don't really know exactly um, what drew Adam Sandler to this project, per se. Like, I never really... I don't know exactly what his connection to uh, like agreeing to make this film Paul Thomas Anderson is, but I know for Paul Thomas Anderson, um, when he wanted to make an Adam Sandler movie, it wasn't like he was like this like serious filmmaker who's like, oh, this like hidden talent that's mm-hmm. like you know like hidden. I mean, maybe to an extent, but like he was like a genuine fan of Adam Sandler. Like he right. he is like said, like I really like I love Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore. Like I thought this guy was hilarious. I just want to make a movie with him. Yeah. Um because I really think he's like a talented dude. And um uh, something I think uh I think because of his like like you said earlier in the episode, like his reputation for being like this kind of like film bro dude that like a lot of like people in like the like uh film Twitter world like like I think some people like expect uh, Paul Thomas Anderson to be like this like kind of like serious nuanced artist in real life mm-hmm. just based on his films but if you like really watch his movies like I would say most of them uh, are comedies like most of them have comedic stuff in them and I think to me the comedy really comes out more in a lot of his films upon rewatch um, I've definitely felt that uh, with this film I definitely felt that with the master uh, with there will be blood um, and I've been told that that's the case with Phantom Thread, although I've only seen that once, um, that that movie gets a lot, lot funnier, uh, the more you watch it. Just like you, I think because you, uh, something with this films, like you, you get like the, like bare, like kind of like essential plot beats of the film when you watch it the first time. Right. But you, when you rewatch them, you, you, you notice more of like the little like nuances in between. And I think that's really where his comedy comes alive or his like, kind of like, like dry, dark sense of humor really pops. And uh, yeah, I would, I would 100% say that um, Punch Drunk Love is a comedy, but it's not like a comedy in the way that his other movies are or right, his exactly. recent movies are, where like, like they're not like um, like Big Daddy or like Billy Madison, where they're like kind of like directly comedic. Comedic. Um, this is like a kind of more like subdued, dry, dark comedy where, um, yeah, like it's it's. I, it's easy to kind of dismiss it as like kind of like art house funny, but it's like kind of it does have kind of like a more like like a European kind of comedic style to it where it's like like it's not like going for like like the big bombastic laughs or like the like huge punchline. It's kind of just like more kind of like seeped like the comedy is kind of like just seeped into the characters and in the interactions and like just like the like minor touches that they put into it. And um, I think that's something that. Like if you go in expecting it like 
to be like a gut busting kind of comedy, then right. you're not really going to get that. But I would say it is absolutely a comedy, just yeah. a kind of uh, very specific kind of comedy. Yeah, I think I, I agree. There is levity in the film. I, I think what makes it stand in stark contrast to his films is that uh, to his normal films, I should say, is that usually his whole thing is whenever he gets mad, it's it's hilarious. Like mm-hmm. uh, in Happy Gilmore, that's his whole character arc is to right. control his temper. And that's kind of his like, oh, shut up, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, or like yelling the, at kids. And right. Really mad <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of a big part of his, his you know, uh, his routine as a, as a mm-hmm. comic actor. But in this film, it completely weaponizes his, uh, his yeah. temper and it's not like when he smashes the windows in the party or when he beats the hell mm-hmm. out of the bathroom, it's not not really supposed to be funny, I don't think, at least not in the same way. It's more like he it's, well, it's a coping mechanism for him, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't want to say it's a more realistic depiction, but it's like a more it's like a, it's a film what's more interested in like the consequences. Right. Yeah. Kind of like, like you said, like like in most comedies, like. Like if he were to smash a glass, like that's it. Like you don't really see like what happened. You just see him like leaving the party or whatever. Yeah, not getting this kicked movie, out of a restaurant in the middle of a day. Yeah, like that's or like yeah, like it would just like he'd smash up the bathroom and then like it'd cut to him like getting ice cream or something. <laughs> like that like they wouldn't really like explore yeah. like a lot of comedy like a lot of studio comedies, especially like um the earlier ninety ones that Billy or that um Adam Sandler did, like with Billy uh Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. I was almost gonna say Billy happy Gilmore, Ma- happy, happy Madison, happy yeah. Madison, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like that, and then like like you said earlier, like the like doctor thing, like like he kind of yeah. draws it out past the punchline to the point where you kind of see the like dark undercurrent of the character. And I I know for a lot of people when they saw it, like traditional Adam Sandler fans at the time, they're really kind of put off by that. But I think that's what really makes this film effective in that like you see like more of the like humanity in these characters, like mm-hmm. they're like it's not just like somebody. That like you, he's not like a like a like a stereotype or like a satirical farce of a person where he's just like like a personification of a man child in um like his earlier films or like just like like this grown child that he's often played like he has like like kind of more layers to his emotions and like there's a lot more uh realism to like how he reacts to things and it it does kind of have like this melancholy undercurrent to like every joke where it's like you laugh but then you hurt because you know that like behind every punchline there's like the sad reality of like mm-hmm. this guy is like a really um disturbed kind of troubled person yeah and like it, it's almost like not not that you feel guilty but like you just feel just so bad for the dude like he's just like a sad person <laughs> I, it's almost like uh pta was almost watching sandler's earlier films and then kind of like popping in his head like i wonder why someone would react that way why would that little mm-hmm. thing set someone right. off that way and then kind of peeled back the layers of sandler's on-screen persona in in that way it really to me makes his 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 casting such a stroke of genius i mean you, this film would work yeah with a lot of other actors in it but i don't think it would have that same resonance because we're seeing adam sandler do his adam sandler thing but in such a different context you know uh, this mm-hmm. this film came out in October of 2002 and it made 17 million domestic and obviously didn't make its 25 million dollar budget back and it's 
it's kind of like yeah. I, I really love the movie, but it's kind of easy to see why. Uh, I imagine a lot mm-hmm. of Adam Sandler fans just going in and then being, you know, the part where yeah. he's talking about like sometimes I cry for no reason, mm-hmm. and then and then he just bursts into tears and walking out, and they're just, are we supposed to laugh at that? Is that a joke? What, right. What's going on? You know, yeah. uh, it is mm-hmm. off-putting in that way, and I think it. it I think the fact that they had Adam Sandler in this film, I think it makes all of that so much more poignant because uh, because we're putting it in such stark contrast. I think in in a, in a similar to similar effect, uh, and it's funny that the composer John Bryan for this film actually worked on Eternal Sunshine. I think it makes that mm-hmm. movie really utilizes Jim Carrey in such the same way. Yeah, that he has that like manic energy, but it's it, and even in that film he has it at points, but it's. It's uh, employed in such a different way that it really makes the character that much, that much more vulnerable, that much more um, relatable in that way. And I think it's always interesting when they when you see comedic actors put in in such uh, such different light. And and in, mm-hmm. you know it's hard to imagine this film now with anyone other than Adam Sandler, just because it feels so tailored to his skill set. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I don't. I honestly could not see anyone else playing the role because I'm pretty sure. Uh, P.T. Anderson wrote the part and conceived the film as a vehicle for Adam Sandler. So, like, if he if he had said no or he was like, yeah, I'm not really, I don't think this material is for me, I'm pretty sure the movie would just not exist. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think, I can't see P.T. Anderson uh, going through with this movie if um, Adam Sandler were to uh, just not be involved with it. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I agree with you in that sense. I, I feel like that might be also the case with Uncut Gems. But I don't know for sure if that's the case, but it does feel like like that that film was also kind of catered to Adam Sandler's persona that we see in in this film and a couple others. And just like like the next evolution of that, like that anxiety and that that stance that's a little more, um, I guess, a little more direct uh, and a little, a little more um, uh, kind of sub, like uh, um, I don't know what the word is like and like uh angry almost or like it just feels like a lot more like a like 2019 response to like what would be a punch drunk love then like uh you know because like 2002 i i mean i was very young when this was happening but i imagine like 2002 was like a lot more like uh like uh, somber of a year like like after 9 11 like Mm -hmm. like the values of the country are kind of changing and uh you know like there's like this kind of mentality of like oh can we laugh again and stuff like that and uh it in this film it, it is kind of weird like it's like a response kind of like 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 a kind of different approach for the typical Adam Sandler vehicle and him expanding himself and seeing what he can do outside of his normal vehicle and uh obviously critics really responded to that fans uh were notably a lot more negative on it and it seems that for a good while I mean uh at least until like I'd say like Spanish or something like that like he was definitely trying to go back to like the straight comedy side of his persona but i'm glad that he's kind of it seems like he's kind of doing like a one for you one for me approach these days where it's like let me do my netflix thing have fun with my friends and then i'll give you like a Meyerwood story or like an uncut gems for you know like the the people who really want that and sometimes that backfires like i think he was kind of trying to do that with the cobbler and that didn't work out but i always appreciate when he he does something a little outside of his wheelhouse but yet something that like a performance that like you know can only be given by Adam Sandler. Right, yeah. He he tends he's tends to make interesting interesting choices. Like one it's like one every, you know, like five half dozen films or something, but it happens. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. I think um 
in this movie specifically there, you know, because it's such from his perspective, he does, there's a lot of things he does in this movie, the least of which, you know, not only just the violence, but also following a girl he just met to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, if we weren't so keyed into where he's coming from, we would just be like, well, this, you know, this guy's a stalker or whatever, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And I think the movie delves into that kind of, uh, that kind of his psychosis in such an interesting way. Um, So one other thing we didn't really get to is, um, you know, and I guess this movie is 17 years old, so it's not really spoiler sensitive anymore. Mm-hmm. So the the whole phone sex subplot, which mm-hmm. really drives yeah. the second half of the movie specifically, um, mm-hmm. you know, he calls the phone sex line and, and uh, we get, you know, kind of a awkward phone call with him uh, just really looking to connect with someone, not even really interested in mm-hmm. the sexual aspect of it, which I thought was really, yeah. was really, uh, again, another moment where it's the, 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 humor comes from the fact that it the like the awkwardness of the situation and she's like mm-hmm. oh your pants off and he's just not he's like no i'm mm-hmm. just hanging out talking to you what are your what's your life like like um just mm-hmm. looking for a consequence free connection basically and yeah. then halfway through the film we flash to utah and we see what's really going on that it's this this whole mm-hmm. scam that's being run out of a mattress store uh and we get yeah. philip seymour hoffman r.i.p uh in you know mm-hmm. one of his he was who's great and who was great in everything uh in one of his of many course, yeah. in one of his many pta performances uh what mm-hmm. what are your overall thoughts on the uh the the phone sex operation and that that whole uh its role in the in barry's story and the romance with lena well similar to um like I, I was mentioning earlier there's a lot of like recurring like themes and materials and like motifs in the film and uh, one thing that really stood out to me, um, not that it was it wasn't apparent before, but just to the extent that it was in the film, like I, I would think, I feel like at least half this movie is like either Barry or other characters like on the phone, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, like either him answering the phone or like talking to somebody on the phone. And um, I think that's kind of telling because, like you said, this is a nearly twenty-year-old film, and it was pretty. Much, I mean, obviously the internet was around then. But, like, it feels like a very, like, pre-internet film mm-hmm. in that, like, for a character like Barry at this time, like, there wasn't, like, like obviously he's very intimidated by social interactions. Uh, like, there's a lot of anxiety that comes from meeting with somebody face-to-face. And a lot of his, like, character arc is learning to overcome that fear and actually form either intimate reactions or emo- relationships with uh, other people or kind of overcoming his fears. Right. And, like coming up to his oppressors like face to face like that that ending scene with philip seymour hoffman um but yeah there's like throughout the film like uh the phone sex thing it, it, like that's another thing that like just feels very like i mean i'm sure there are still like phone sex like operations now but it's not really like something that is, is like as common a business right as you, it now was you then. Would go to a website or something like, right. like a webcam thing or something yeah that's yeah totally different. right but there is like a universal truth to like what he's feeling. And I think that's something mm-hmm. that, that that even though like I don't think people can really relate to like how many landlines are in the film or like how he has to be on like payphones and all this stuff. But I think like like obviously like, you know, like again, like cell phones are around, but it's like pre like everyone having a cell phone. Right. Uh, but there is like the truth to that, um, like just like that, that intimacy and that like he like obviously wants to connect with people and talk to somebody. But like he, he has intimate scenes in the film are when he has to be on the phone. And I think it's a credit to um, Paul Thomas Anderson as a filmmaker that like, even though a majority of the film, well, maybe not a majority, but at least a good portion of the film 
is characters on the film that it feels very cinematic and feels very like grand in this particular way that he makes movies. And um, I would say easily, I think if it's not my favorite moment in the film, then one of my favorite moments, just like when he's in the phone booth in Hawaii and he's constantly again, like kind of similar to that scene in the hotel where, um, you know, he has the number for uh, Emily Watson's character and he keeps like, you know, like I wrong person. And then like, he just like, he can't connect with this, uh, this person he wants to talk to. And then as soon as that happens, like the cell phone, like lights up and it's like, you know, like a, like, like a, like lightning or like a, um, light bulb moment. Like it's like, like a epiphany Eureka moment where he's finally, you know, connected to somebody or he's connected to this woman that he's wanted to. And it's like such a warm, tender moment that, uh, every time I watch it, it always gets me. It just, it's such a beautiful little scene. Yeah, all their interactions feel that way to me. Like there's there's such a, a warmth in in every scene that they have together. Like I I wasn't really expecting that. I mean, I knew it was a love story going in, but I didn't um I, I don't know. This I don't I don't know if it's Emily Watson's performance or just the the screenplay or both. I mean, obviously both, but mm-hmm. it's yeah, there's just a yeah. such a the tenderness to uh to Lena mm-hmm. and the way that she interacts with him, the way she handles uh Barry and his, you know, uh, but at the same time, also being realistic, where she tells her about the the pudding plan, and he's whispering about it like he's you know, mm-hmm. like it's like top mm-hmm. secret information, and and she's like that's insane. Uh, yeah. And I, I thought that that was another moment where it was like another laugh moment that I thought was really funny. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I I really like I loved all of that. Uh, the the phone sex subplot I thought was was interesting in that it also <laughs> so there's some scenes where Barry's kind of a, an amateur detective trying to track down exactly where they are yeah. so that he can get there. And I thought all that was, yeah. that was great. Uh, flying all the way to Utah and, to make uh, that confrontation and, mm-hmm. and seeing, you know, him, uh, the, the, obviously the whole, I have a love in my life speech is great. Yeah. And I, I definitely, I, I mean, the main thing for me with the phone sex plot is that that's the main key. I think that drive the anxiety for the remainder of the film mm-hmm. in that, like uh, there's like this almost kind of like, supernatural like like you can like even though they're obviously in utah like there's like this constant feeling that like they're watching him and like they're like calling his house and like his place of business and there's a scene where he's like leaving emily watson's apartment and like the lady uh the like secretary lady of the apartment is like are you barry like the phone's for you and like there's like a brief moment where it's like did these people even find out (laughs) like he like is with this lady and then like obviously you know it's like emily watson talking but like there's this like constant like threat that like they're um like watching over him that they're like gonna do his danger and obviously the um the brothers uh I, I think like three or four of them I believe mm-hmm. um uh, I, I I I caught this time I was very amused that um Philip Seymour Hoffman I forgotten that he was like I can only pay three of you, or like I can only pay two of you I think he says <laughs> at one point and they're just like oh, okay that's fine <laughs> um like like there's there's like kind of like 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 they're just kind of like figures like they don't really have any personality at all like we know literally nothing about them but there's like this like like threatening figures in his life and um yeah and like i I, to me the the main point of it is that they're kind of like the driving personality for him to like conquer his fears or like deal with like the worst of what he would fear like social anxiety would be but then like through the love that he gets through emily watson's character like he he realizes that he can overcome these fears and that he you know literally flies to utah uh, with a phone in hand, like that's love. <laughs> yeah, that seeing love too, where great. he's like in the office, and he like escapes the box, and then like he like literally disconnects from them, but he's like still always carrying the phone. Uh, yeah, just like the little metaphors and things like that. I just love that. 
that was a great misdirect with the phone call that, that you mentioned because I, I was obviously feeling the exact same thing. Like, oh shit, it's happening already. That was really fast. Um, but then, of course, yeah, then he gets attacked later on, and uh, I I, I like the fact that the, that they are in a way. I like the fact that they're not developed because we don't care about those people anyway. So why are we wasting screen time on them? And that they basically well, I think that just, makes them more threatening. Yeah, yeah, of course, of like course. They, we don't really know anything about them. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, the bully in a high school movie. It's like they're really just supposed to be mm-hmm. a force of nature, embodying the pressures of adolescence and all that stuff. It's just in this film. Yeah. The, the figurehead of that just happens to be played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's as magnetic a performer as he was. And uh, no, I love the part where they're, attack, uh, they're attacking him and Lena in the car. They slam his car. And it's, it's just a little trickle of blood on her, on her, uh, on her head that yeah. turns him into a, and basically an action hero for, for a couple minutes, just on, mm-hmm. you know, running on, on pure adrenaline uh, because he's yeah. realizing that. Then, and that was his motivation for going to, you know, to face, uh, to face Dean head on is that he's like, well, I can't let this happen to her. That's, you know, that was his whole thing. Cause he was just ignoring it as much as he could up to that point. And I thought, that was right. really, you know, as, from a metaphorical standpoint, that's a really great way for him. Like those are like his his demons sort of made, uh, you know, made alive, made uh, come to sentience, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I need to, as you're saying, defeat them in order to, for their relationship to uh, to progress. And I thought that was a really, you know, the fact that he saw her head bleeding and that was the, the trigger for him to really fight back. And now he has essentially mm-hmm. now he has something to fight for. And I thought that was a really, a really great, great visual way to get that message across yeah and i just love that scene so much where he just like flawlessly defeats these people and it's like another scene that's like a musical kind of moment where it's mm-hmm. just like it's like it feels almost choreographed like yeah. how precise his uh his like attack is there and it's just it's so great i always love to revisit that scene whenever i need like an adrenaline pump because it's just so good yeah well we know he's good at punching and kicking stuff he's got <laughs> he's been doing it all right. movies so i mean it's, you know now he just has a, a place yeah. to aim basically Mm-hmm. And um, something I don't know if, this, if you notice this as much as well that like glass shattering is like often um, a running thing throughout the movie, like mm-hmm. with like the car crash and like his like little like thing that he says like can't break and it does, and then like him smashing yeah. the windows, and then like later when he's like fighting the guys, he like smashes their like windows again and their truck. That's the one thing like, I I know it's definitely about something. I, I don't I still even after I was I don't know if they exactly know exactly what that means. So I was going to talk about that with you and see if you had any interpretations for that. Uh, it could be that just, you know, the, the life that, the, that he's created for himself, kind of the, uh, the sort of mm-hmm. c- closed in, like isolated existence is starting to break away. Right. So something like that. I think it's obviously yeah. supposed to be some, some kind of a uh, mm-hmm. manifestation of his psychology and just, you know, the fact that things are literally, he's shattering. I mean, as you, you were saying earlier, the color right. swirling or just him like trying to, make yeah. sense of everything and I, I think it was mm-hmm. telling too i believe in the if i'm not you know correct me if i'm wrong here the, there were the three panels of glass at the party he smashes the first one and the last one and the middle one that he's standing behind is shattered but like not breaking and i think that was very that felt to me very representative of the way that he feels inside like broken but like not falling apart mm-hmm. just kind of barely holding it together Maybe I thought he smashed. I I think he smashed all three, but I'll have to rewatch that yeah, to be sure because yeah. might be right about that. There was at least, a, if not, if 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 he did, there was at least a, a few frames where 
it was him standing in front of uh, the the glass before it did like it fall apart. If it, if it did, I forget exactly how that went, but but yeah. So he might have like smashed the first one and then the third one. They like, kicks the last one, maybe. Maybe I think or something like that. Like yeah, I forget exactly how it comes out, but yeah, you you might be right about that. I'll have to rewatch it. Uh, I, one thing else I wanted to know is the song "He Needs Me" that's used in the movie. I kept he- hearing it. You know, it, it plays kind of a prominent role at one point. And I, I yeah. Googled it. It's in the score, like, I too. I know yeah. what this is. I've heard this before. And it yeah, turns out it's from, it's from uh, Popeye. Yes, which I saw as a kid like mm-hmm. a million years ago. And I was like, oh, that's mm-hmm. exactly what it's from. I, well, I really, what do you think is the significance of using that song specifically? Because it's uh, it's the love songs, you know, it's the vocals by Shelly Duvall. So it's like Olive Oil's love song to, to Popeye, basically, about mm-hmm. Popeye that he needs her and, and all that stuff. So what do you, you know, wh- how do you think it's applied here specifically? Well, I mean, again, as I was talking about earlier, I do think that's directly a connection to like his love of Robert Altman movies. And um, mm. just like that one seems yeah. like it's kind of like a misunderstood one. Like it, it's another film that like wasn't really what people anticipated it to be. Um, you know, like it was like this, like it's it's a very like 70s movie. Yeah. Like it's like a. I don't know if you if you see you, you did say you saw yeah it, right? a long the, time ago though I would love to Popeye watch it movie. now I'd right. love to see it now and see how what I thought of it it's yeah. it's basically it's the closest to a live action cartoon that I think has really ever been made in a lot in a lot of ways yeah to an extent yeah I mean um it I I saw it like like you said like a while ago so it's not really fresh in my mind but right. I remember it's like it, it it's it's almost like a joke kind of thing like Robert Altman's Popeye mm-hmm. like it's a film that like. It, it, it there's no real like sensical reason why it exists it was uh robin williams first movie uh as an actor um a lot of people involved with the production were very high on cocaine they had a bunch of um production issues um it, it almost derailed robin williams career uh, as a uh, rising lead actor um but i think there is like a kind of like similar to this film there is like kind of like a melancholy sweetness to it like it's a kind of film where it's like compared to like the cartoons of Popeye which are very like actiony and like right. you know like this guy like kind of fighting for like the woman he loves and stuff and like kind of getting like this like you know like using like spinach or his love of olive oil to like fight people and stuff which is kind of similar to Punch Drunk Love right. um he uh it's it's a very like rounded look at like something that's very like comedic and very kind of like over the top and that's kind of like what we were saying earlier with like this film in conjunction with uh or in comparison to um other I'm saying on movies, it's like a lot moodier. It's a lot, um, uh, it's like a lot more like uh, artistic as far as it's like cinematic approach. And I don't know if that was like intentional parallel between the films, but to me, it's just like a kind of like siren call for um, what uh, Barry kind of perceives. Like he he feels like this kind of like emotional direct connection to this woman, where like. Like it's it's kind of like it's used a little ironically, but it's also sincere in that like he obviously needs her. Like that's like even though the song's mm-hmm. saying like he needs me, it's right. like he, he more he needs her like throughout the scene. But there is like this like kind of like like we were hinting at earlier, like there is like this recurring um, um, notion throughout the film where it seems like she also needs him as well. Like they kind of complete each other in that kind of uh, stereotypical uh, romantic way and. Um, to me, that's why I, I think it works perfectly in the film. And again, it's also like one of those songs where it's like, it's like kind of, um, it's like kind of odd. Like it's it's not like sung perfectly, but there is like a kind of odd beauty to it. Like there's like a, it's very sweet song, but like 
it's not like a, a Shelley Duvall was never like a traditional singer. Right. And it, it's not like sung in like a way that like, you know, like a Lady Gaga or someone would like nail it out of the park. But I think that almost makes it a little better for like how it's used in Popeye in this film and that like it's not perfect. It's not it's not like beautifully. It's not like done in the most like gorgeous way, but it is beautiful in its own weird little way. And that's like kind of like what their relationship is and what the movie's like. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It does. It, there's a certain earnestness to uh, Shelley Duvall's vocals there. And, you you know, talking about Popeye, you were really kind of pointing out that I guess there there are a few, like, thematic uh, connections between Punch Drunk Love and Popeye. It's just, when I heard it in the movie, it was just so unexpected, you know, uh, such an unexpected, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, needle drop, I guess, um, for, for this movie. And I, I think, mm-hmm. like like the film, it, it does balance that kind of earnestness with the, with a sort of dry, like, knowing wit. Um I think that's we've covered a lot of what I had in my notes. Do is there anything before we start wrapping up? Is there anything about Punch Drunk Love that we uh, that we haven't talked about? I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, like you said, I think we kind of covered the like broad um, generals of the film because, like you said, it's like an only ninety minute film. Right. Exactly. Uh, we're almost like we're almost getting to that runtime in this conversation. So, <laughs> um, but I don't know. Nothing's really coming out to me right now. I mean, I could I could go on about Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance as well. Oh, I just right. love um, uh, just like the way he delivers all of his lines in this movie is just so great to me. Like, uh, I forget. I, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, I, of I course. Forget. Go for it. Um, OK. OK. Just want to make sure. Yeah. But just like the way he's just like, shut the fuck up. Just like that. That delivery. And it's like that. Shut, 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 shut up. It's like kind of pathetic, and he's like trying to ha- like he's like trying to be this alpha male at the same yeah. time. Um, and there is something I mean, kind of similar to how um, it's not really hinted upon a lot. I wonder if there's like a lot of deleted scenes with it, but um, I, I, there is like kind of like this like running kind of underlying theme throughout the film that like he's a little bit like Barry as well, like in like a like kind of more directly bad way. Like mm-hmm. he's kind of closed off, kind of like moody, doesn't really know how to connect with women, but he's like kind of throws his weight around a lot and like just kind of like uh he he also like is like a business owner he owns like a mattress store and it's like obviously you know another line of business that's like doesn't really ever seem to be filled with customers or like that uh well occupied beyond just the general employees the kind of faceless employees so there is like a kind of suggestion throughout the film that they, they there's like some similarities between them but it's never really explored enough to like dive too deep into but i I still love the performance all the same and the character too the uh his reaction when adam sandler tells him to go fuck himself i thought was was really great Mm -hmm. and he's yeah he's just like yeah yeah oh oh, what oh you did not know you're dead like the way he like freaks out like he doesn't know he doesn't know what to do next he's like that was my trump card Mm -hmm. (laughs) was telling you to go to shut the fuck up and 